Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. That's half an hour on your radio where we talk about science. This week, my name's Stu. Well, my name's always Stu, but (laughs) this week I'm going to be talking to Sean Harris, who is a PhD student at the University of New South Wales, who just helped Australia win the Robo Cup, which is a competition between autonomous robots playing soccer. Manisha, what have you got for us? I'll be discussing a little obsession we all have and the obsession we have with music and why we like music. We do like music. I really like music. I love music. Okay, and Claire, what have you got? Um, I've actually got an interview um, with an international guest who's over here for um, National Science Week, and her name is Yvette Dontremont, a.k.a. Cybabe. Ah, Cybabe. Cybabe. She's a blogger. She's an anti-pseudoscience trailblazer and an all-round awesome person. Stay tuned. Okay, so I have with me on the line Sean Harris, who's a PhD student at the University of New South Wales. Now, Sean, what are you studying? What is the, what is the general area of your PhD and what specifically are you studying? Uh, I'm studying AI and robotics. Uh, and my, my more specific area is in, in machine learning, so trying to get robots to learn from things they've done in the past. Okay, so how did, how did you get into that? Um, I actually, I did my undergraduate in software engineering and I uh, joined the RoboCup soccer team as part of that and then that sort of perked my interest in in robotics and machine learning uh, through that. So I guess uh, machine learning and AI is kind of software, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's all, it's all, uh, it's all about how you, how the, how the robot thinks about its environment and what it's going to do next. Okay, so now you mentioned the, the RoboCup. Now... Someone asked me when I told them I was going to be talking to you if this was the Robo Pup Cup, but that that's actually a different event, isn't it? The the league that we're in, which is called the Standard Platform League, yep. everyone has the same robots. And so the previous standard robot was a four-legged Ibo dog. Right. And that was up until, I think, 2007 or 2008. Okay, so they've moved on from the from the robo pups. Yeah, and now now it uses this two-legged humanoid robot instead. So the idea is to move it towards real soccer over time. Do, do the rules are they, have the rules always been the same, or do they change over time with no, the it, with the? It changes every year. The idea is is to every year make it more and more like real soccer. So when when the competition started, it was with four-legged dog robots on a really small field, with all these uh, coloured things around the field to help you work out where you were. Now we have two-legged humanoid robots on a nine-meter field with, with basically uh, white goals, white field lines, no colors around the field, uh, and, and, a, and a fairly regular soccer 
uh, field looking environment. The ball is the regular soccer ball or? That, uh, so this year the ball was a small orange hockey ball. Okay. But uh, so it, it was quite unique and it's the only orange thing on the field. But next year the ball will not be a small orange hockey ball. It would be a regular kid sized soccer ball. So they are each time they're trying to get more and more like an actual soccer match. Correct. So so the goal is that by 2050 they want to be able to uh, play a game of soccer against the FIFA World Champions and beat them. Okay, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty lofty aspiration, I guess. But yeah. that that's uh, that's what 35 years away. Yeah, exactly. And They've... so the, the the idea is that by incrementally changing the rules, the research slowly gets better and better and moves towards that final goal. So I guess the, the the initial rules were to take into account the limitations of the robot players and the Correct. and the programming that went along with them. And so I guess what each year as someone sort of breaks through the limitations or expands the abilities of the robots, the rules move outwards with them. Yeah, yeah. correct, exactly. Um, so this year, one of the new additions this year was that the uh, the game was started with a human whistle, so you had to listen for the referee to blow his whistle. Okay, and how, how did they start the games previously? In the past, it was just over Wi-Fi, so you, you got a wireless packet that said, okay, kick off now. Ah, oh, so it was it was basically like a, a a secret message to the robots. Yeah, well, so, so there's a there's a game there's a referee computer which tells the robots you know when they're penalised, when a goal is scored, things like that. Okay. And so they used to start the kickoff from that, but now they have to listen for a human whistle and start the kickoff off that instead. Much more well, if you're ever going to play a FIFA team, that's a, that's a bit more fair. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> um, so how do the how do the robots do with the uh, with the whistle? Uh, it, it was a hard challenge, so it was only for the for the game for the finals, okay. so quarterfinals onwards. So not all the teams had to do it. Uh, we we were um, perfect through the competition with that. We didn't have any. We never false started, and we never missed a whistle. Um, we were the only team who was who was perfect on it. Some other teams, most teams were close and sort of got maybe eighty percent of, of the whistles right. Uh, but on the whole, it was actually quite quite well handled. So how, how did your team do better than the other teams on the on the picking up on the whistle? Well, we had we had a fairly good uh, algorithm that actually detected the whistle, but I think one of the one of the big things we did was the team sort of took a vote amongst themselves as to whether or not the whistle was heard every time they thought it it had, it had been blown. So if one guy thinks the whistle has been blown but no one else does, they agree, okay, you're wrong. It hasn't actually started. Let's wait. But then if three out of the five do think it's, it's gone, they tell the other two, oh, you guys must have missed it, the game started. And everyone, so the, so the team makes a distributed decision about whether or not it's, it's time to play. Majority rule, democratic vote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, right. And well, obviously that works because you, you got it right every time. Yes, it did for us. Yes, definitely. So did that, did that help with the win? Yes, very much so. Because so there was still... You, if you didn't hear the whistle, uh, you got a, a wireless packet 15 seconds later. So you got a 15-second delay if you didn't hear the whistle. Right. So that means we basically got a free 15 seconds to get the ball and get it moving so the way got, we wanted. So you got the jump on the other team. Yeah, exactly. Right. What? Any other, uh, any other advantages that your team had that helped them uh, get across the line? Uh, we also uh, walk quite quickly. I mean, obviously very slow in, in compared to, to people, but compared to the other the other teams and their robots, we were able to walk a little bit faster, which meant 
we get to the ball first, we get a little bit more time, and we can move move the ball in, in the way we, we want. So that was a big advantage for us. So I guess um, as far as m- movement, I mean, you could you could make the robot run as fast as it can. Is that a problem? Uh, yes, it's very hard to <clears throat> to walk uh, stably. Um, it, it, it's easy to walk really quickly, but fall over lots. Um, yeah. Hard it is just to walk and change speed um, reliably without falling over, and we were able to do that quite well this year. Um, any any uh, tips that you picked up from the match that you think you will will help in future? Will help you get you know get up to the next win win next time? Uh, oh, there's always there's lots and lots of things we could do to improve. <laughs> uh, next year the ball's going to get a bit bigger, so this year it's quite small. Next year it's going to be quite large, so we're going to have to I think we'll be able to sort of scoop the ball and kick it differently and and add a variety of of extra moves to our arsenal for next year. I think. And so it runs every year? Yes, correct. And where's it going to be running next year? Uh, next year we'll be in Leipzig, Germany. Okay, and you'll get to go over there as well? Correct. Excellent, excellent. What a great job. Good luck for, um, for next year uh, in the Robo Cup uh, World Soccer Robot Championships. Thanks very much. And um, well done for winning this year. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Sean Harris. No worries, thank you. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. And I mean really likes music. Like it can change your mood, can make you feel calm, or it can get you good and fired up. Or all of a sudden you just hear a song that you haven't for ages and you remember everything about the first day you heard it. Chances are I've described a fair few of you. Research has shown that music triggers a number of zones of your brain. There are no music centers per se, but rather we trigger many centers by playing music. A lot of studies have shown that the temporal lobe is one of the key regions that is triggered. This lobe is involved with processing sensory information, information with sight, touch, taste, smell, and sound. Well, that makes sense, though, because if, if it's the center for processing sound, or music is sound, so of yes. course it's going to trigger that part of your brain. Yes. I guess. Yes. Um, studies show that uh, the temporal lobe is what helps us process things like the harmony in music. The other brain lobe that's triggered is the frontal lobe, which is associated actually with decision-making and planning. But in terms of music, this lobe is associated with forming the structure and the meaning of songs. 
But so, so it's not, it's not, you know, the decision to whether to turn the song off or <laughs> just keep listening, you know, you know or run away. Maybe, maybe it's that like lack of commitment means some sort of lack of development in your frontal lobe. But so the frontal lobe, the way that it's actually involved in all of this music stuff is that it's where a majority of our dopamine sensitive neurons are located. Um, and just to remind everyone, dopamine is the happy hormone, the hormone associated with euphoria and reward. And there's actually been a number of studies to show that listening to music releases dopamine. It's kind of in those moments where you have those, like when you feel goosebumps when you hear music or like there's just something about the song, like the like the really good guitar riff or like there's the lyrics that you just, you can't get over and you just get those strong emotions. And that's apparently this massive release of dopamine. So is this is this with music that people know already, or is this does this happen when people hear new music as well? There's some studies to suggest that the release of dopamine comes with when your like anticipation is confirmed. So if you're per, like if you know what the structure is going to be like, or you can really wait for that part of the song, or you know that there's going to be a really cool part, and that's confirmed, you get that this massive hit of dopamine. But then in other cases, so the whole foreign aspect of things, people don't tend to get as strong of a hit from foreign sounding music. So if it's something that you don't know, mm. then you may not respond to it as euphorically as something you do know. But if it but if it's structured in a way that you're used to, yeah, then you'll be going, oh, here comes the chorus, and you'll yeah. get all excited, and then the chorus comes, and you're really happy. Yeah, or like those songs that have those really like long guitar-y bits after the second chorus, and you're like, oh yeah, this is meant to be really awesome. So I'm gonna. And then you rock I'm out so with an sure. air guitar. Yeah. Okay. So the interesting thing is actually that dopamine is a pretty essential hormone in our body and in our neurological pathways. There are a number of studies that link dopamine to various sources of euphoria. So if it's riding up and down in an elevator, so be it. Um, but dopamine hits come from things like running and exercise, but then also really basic survival activities like eating and having sex. Listening to music has actually been found to release similar levels of dopamine to those same um, survival activities. So it's pretty interesting. And um, the, there have even been studies that have linked the blood flow in our brain to rise similarly to those same euphoric stimuli. So listening to music is actually mimicking the pleasure and reward that you receive from these different activities like eating or having sex. So, so as far as our brain is concerned, music is as important as eating and having sex. Apparently. It's pretty important. It's up there on the needs. Yeah, but. yeah. Yeah, so apparently, um, so this is actually leading people into um, or prompting interesting research into the evolutionary advantage behind music. And more specifically, what the advantage is behind creating a tune or being able to identify a tune. And this is all leading into some, well, a lot of this, the studies here are related to like the social psychology side of things. And the idea here is that people that prefer the same sort of music tend to band together, pun intended. Um, and the advantage, the evolutionary advantage there could be in the numbers. So and it's kind of like a tribalism thing. You can recognize your tribe because they all like the same they all music. Like, yeah. And I guess it also, it's almost a way of projecting your, just how good you would be to reproduce with if you could 
So it's like a called... it's like a sexual advertisement. Yeah, apparently. Apparently these are what these studies are saying. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it could be like I'm sure we all know that rock stars are at no uh, loss of sexual partners and being able to reproduce. So maybe this all has to do with some sort of evolutionary advantage of being able to produce music and make people really euphoric and really happy. Hmm. Just want to... It's interesting too that... Sex. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting too that there's no cultures that we've ever found who don't have music. This is true, and it... There's no musicless human culture. Yeah, and music is meant to be like an extension of communication. And Hmm. so... I'm sure there's a so lot it's, of it's, it seems like it's a, it seems like it's a pretty basic uh, thing if our brains have been uh, to wired to so think much. that you know that that's important stuff reinforce yeah. that mm. so it's it's amazing yeah so not only can music make you incredibly happy in a chemical and hormonal way but it can also help you survive by giving you an advantage to form larger groups and secure mates easier it's, mm. it's really helpful uh, if you run into another tribe instead of having like a battle, you can just have a dance off. I'm Maggie Adaren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR.
My guest this week is blogger, scientist, and all-round straight talker, Yvette Dontremont. <laughs> Howdy. A.K.A. Cybabe. On her blog, she looks at alternative medicine and pseudoscience through a very impressive and well-developed sceptical lens, may I say so, <laughs> and writes and tweets about it online. She is currently in Australia, far from her home in Boston, Massachusetts, or more recently, California, and is an international guest for National Science Week. So welcome to Thank Lost in Science. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, now, Yvette, you've got a Bachelor of Science and a Master's degree in Forensic Science, and um, you have previously worked um, in science as a researcher. Is that right? Correct. It's I've, I've had a couple different jobs. Some of them, um, as, let's see, one as a toxicology chemist at, at a drug testing facility, one um, as, as an explosives chemist um, at a Homeland Security contractor, and most recently as um, as a chemist at a pesticide testing um, and development lab. So I had a couple different jobs, and wow. now and I started SciBabe when I was working um, at the pesticide lab because I kept uh -huh. reading different accounts on the internet saying that there's no testing done on pesticides. And I thought that was funny because I, I guess people thought I was just looking at porn all day. And I promise you it was a max of, of one hour a day, maybe two. You know, Fridays, they, they happen. <laughs> Thursdays too sometimes. So, And that was the point was I started, you know, saying things like that on the internet while, while debunking myths about about science. And, you know, it got people to, to tune in and say, okay, maybe there's something, you know, maybe there's something here um, about the science and maybe there's, you know, there's some humor happening here to you know to make me pay attention to the science and it was it was getting people to listen that was the hardest part because there were a lot of science blogs out there mm. that you know people were, were writing about it but people weren't paying attention all the time because you know, who wants to read a scientific paper on their time off that's if, right if they're not a scientist because they're not a scientist exactly so i mean on my time off i'm uh, i'm i'm watching south park <laughs> yeah, people want entertainment exactly right? then they yeah. want and they want to laugh you know it's yeah. like we can we can print a lot of information you know, from what we pay attention to during our off-duty hours, I'm watching things that are making me laugh. And, you know, if I can make somebody listen to a little bit of science uh, by getting them to laugh, I'm, I'm definitely going to make them laugh first. And, and then they're going to listen to my facts, which is a wonderful way to get them uh, to get a little bit of knowledge in their day. Absolutely. And so now are you running your blog full time? It's uh, running the blog. Um, and I mean, earlier in the year, I had that. I, I wrote a little bit about the food babe earlier this year. Oh, um, and the food babe. <laughs> Um, for those who don't know, is... Uh she is a food. She she's a wonderful human being. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> she writes about food, and what she does is she tells people that there's this ingredient that's hidden in your food that's trying to kill you right now. Oh, that's um, dangerous. It's and it's not. I promise you. <laughs> and she sa she'll say things like, you know, there's this hidden ingredient these horrible corporations are putting into your food that's trying to kill you. And she'll take something out of context, um, and she'll try to say that there's this ingredient in your pumpkin spice latte or in you mm -hmm. know in in whatever you know whatever is the the hidden thing this week um, and she'll try to make it sound scary and try to make a chemical that you've never heard of before sound like the thing that's this you know the demon of the week and she'll go after these very uh, high profile corporations because of course you've heard of them and it can put money into her pocket by going after these corporations so uh, the thing that kind of made me launch my blog was when she went after Starbucks uh, because don't don't mess with the Bostonians pumpkin spice anything um, so 
she went after Starbucks and said the pumpkin spice latte was the devil. Um, and here's the thing. I, you know, you maybe should only have two of them a year because they're really high in calories. Not great for you. But she said, you know, it had uh, caramel color level four, which was carcinogen class uh, 2B. You know, it's the worst carcinogen class, which, you know, people didn't know what that was. But it sounded scary, right? Yeah, uh, it but sounds as soon as you hear the word carcinogen, carcinogen exactly you're thinking that's terrifying. That's terrible for you. So, I mean, yeah. what we did was I'm, I'm like, I broke it down for people and said, yep. no, no, no. There's something else in your coffee that's carcinogen class 2B, the coffee. <laughs> because of the acrylamide that, that accumulates during the roasting process. And when people heard that, they're like, oh, that's why did she say that then? I'm like, because it got your attention. It made yeah. you think that she was telling you something that you didn't know. And she did tell you something you didn't know, but she took it so out of context that it scared people. So, you know, when I wrote about her, it got a lot of people's attention. And it made people think that, you know, maybe there was there wasn't a lot of veracity to like the natural health movement. Mm. Um and that's kind of what I do is I shine a light on the people that are trying to scare you about your food and trying to scare you about GMOs and trying to scare you about vaccines mm -hmm. or maybe sp uh, spreading bad health information about things like alternative cancer cures. And mm -hmm. it's like I want people to look for proof and I want people to look for, you know, ask ask for not just ask for demand proof <laughs> when yeah. somebody's telling you that something works. Um, because if you don't, you know, your health and your wallet uh, might really suffer for it. Absolutely. Well, that actually brings me to my next question um do you think that um people who are reading your blog um do you think that they're becoming more skeptical of what they read um or do you think people on the internet with all this pseudoscience around and all this misinformation um do you think you know what's what's the trend in it's, I hope that people are getting more skeptical, and yeah. that's kind of my my biggest plan for it. Because I know there there are actual skeptic conventions that I go to and that I speak at, and it's I'm not I'm writing for you know the I guess the average uh, person who's not going to a skeptic convention. And yes, skeptics. Um, I mean, there are actual like, like I said, skeptic conventions for the people that are really hardcore uh, into this. But I'm writing for the average person who just I want them to get a little more skeptical and and not cynical. Because cynical means that you think that everybody's out to poison you. I, I think I want people to kind of have an optimistic view that everything in the food and water isn't poisoning you, but you should look for proof mm. and be and see that once you have a couple a couple of reputable studies from a different a couple different sources, that this probably means that the thing you're looking at is safe. Um, right. and so, um, so a couple of different references yes. from different sources. Look for and things like yep. meta-analyses. Looking for meta-analyses. And um, what other advice do you think you could give to people who are trying to look for scientific information it's, on a certain subject. I think when you see a, a health blogger or a food blogger say uh, give give out health advice and then you see that disclaimer at the bottom of their page saying this advice is not intended to be health advice, you might want to look for a different source of advice because the, all they've been doing is giving you health advice um, and then they're telling you this isn't intended to be health advice. That's not a good source <laughs> of health information. Uh, first, you know, go to the right expert and that's that's the best piece of information i can give someone because i'm i'm not the right expert for a lot of things i but, try to tell people can you point them in the yes, direction exactly yeah. and i mean i'm i'm the person who tells people here are the right experts and i mean i don't tell them you know here's like i don't like pluck you know here's my chosen expert for you but i tell people here's you know if you want a person to ask on gmos go to a plant uh, a plant pathologist go to go to a farmer you know don't don't ask a food blogger you know it's i i tell people here's the type of expert who you should ask 
Um, and so you've spent some time in Melbourne yep. and um, now you are heading to other parts of the country for National Science Week. Mm-hmm. Um, where are you going next? What um, are you going to be up to? I'm going to be in uh, in Hobart, down in Tasmania, and I'm going to be in Adelaide. So I'm looking forward to uh, to meeting people and to uh, to getting to explore this wonderful country so far. I've, I've enjoyed your coffee so much. It is it is pretty good. It oh is world-renowned. I just had the best latte of my life. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science today. Have thank you for having me. time in Australia. Um, and our listeners can head to your blog at scibabe.com or find you on the Twitter handle at the scibabe. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.